0: well good morning this morning we're going to be opening our bibles to mark chapter 10 the lord has laid this on my heart um, and he's taught me so much i i just hope and pray that um, he will use uh, what i've studied and and what i've been learning to share with you this morning in a way that will he can use for his glory um, I want to start off by introduction by asking, what is most most important to you? What is most important to you? What's the first thing that comes to mind? I know you feel like you're in church and you have to maybe come up with a church answer. But I'm hoping that this is more than just a church answer, but this is a moment-by-moment answer in your heart. Because the most important thing to us should be the glory of God, and it's you know the, where we invest, where we invest our time, where we invest our money, is going to tell us, communicate to our even our own hearts, what is most important to us. This is something that uh, God is doing in us. It's a work that He has begun to be concerned and to be focused and to have an ambition for His glory. In our text this morning, it just was overwhelmingly clear that this is the underlying message of this text. The glory of God. And so I hope that we will see that, we will... um, Rejoice in that and um, that it'll thrill us and we will be taught through it. So my first point, if you're taking notes, is the steadfast, amazing love. Steadfast amazing love. And Mark chapter 10, verse 32, Mark writes in his gospel by led by the Holy Spirit. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, or behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests, and the scribes, and they will condemn Him to death and deliver Him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock Him and spit on Him and flog Him and kill Him. And after three days, He will rise. I want you to notice this passage starts off with the attitude, with the the atmosphere of those who are following Jesus, there is an amazement and an awe of those who are following Him. The ESV says a fear of those who are following Him. Now why would that be the atmosphere of those following Jesus at this time? Well, they have seen Him manifest his glory they have seen him manifest his glory they have seen him feed 5000 4000 they have seen him heal all the sick he has demonstrated that he is the son of god so often when i thought of jesus revealing god's glory i i often thought well me in the manger and and at his death and resurrection, but he was glorifying God his whole life. And his followers were beginning to see it. Also, in our text, something different is happening in that Jesus is leading this group to Jerusalem. Now this is an awesome thing because Jesus nor- normally would be walking with them, teaching as He went. But He is steadfast. He is resolute in his, this trip to Jerusalem. He shows His purpose. He explains His purpose to His disciples. Now this is the third time in just a short while that he has explained that he is to suffer, that he is to die. But this is the first time he has said where in Jerusalem. He's also um, very explicit in this description of what is to occur to him. And the disciples, those closest to him, just aren't seeming to get it. They aren't seeming to understand. Maybe they don't want to understand. But it's so amazing. And this may be part of the fear, the awe of his followers at this time as well. Now we come to our second main point, which is the first request. The first request, promise me. And James and John... The sons of Zebedee came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called to them and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. I want to start off by looking at Jesus and seeing his glory, seeing how he demonstrates that he is God. And it's so amazing to think that, these, that the Lord listens, isn't it? The Lord hears them. They come up with this outrageous request. Lord, grant to us whatever we ask. It's kind of like a little kid. You, you remember, probably you did it. Maybe your kids did it to you. Daddy, please promise me. Promise you what? Just promise me, Daddy. Promise me. (laughs) They're asking Jesus to grant them whatever they ask. The Lord hears them. We don't see any rebuke from Jesus in this, do we? In His answer to them. It's so amazing. What an amazing God we have. How amazing is the Lord Jesus who listens to them. Who hears them. As we were studying through the book of Judges in our Sunday school class, we, we saw over and over again, generation by generation, the people would forsake God, would worship false gods, worship idols of the land, and God would give them what they were asking for, oppression, because they chose to reject him. They chose the idols of the land that they were supposed to get rid of to cleanse the land from those idols, from those even those people that worship those idols, worship those false gods. And so God would grant them what they asked. He would oppress them. And then they would cry out to God, And very rarely do we see in the book of Judges that it was a cry of repentance. It was mostly cries of agony. And yet God heard them and would raise up a deliverer, a judge, to bring an end to their oppression. What an amazing God we have. He hears us. I want you to get that message this morning. God will hear you if you cry out to Him. I am so concerned about the attitude of prayer in our churches as Christians. So many people, even our, 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 our culture, our country, so many people are following after false gods that when it comes to prayer, it's a prayer of positive thinking you know or it's a prayer it's, a, it's just a wish I want you to have today the confidence that God hears you a living God a powerful God a God of all creation the one who created from nothing by speaking hears you when you cry out to him what a magnificent God we have. Psalm 84, 11 says, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. James reminds us that we are to ask for wisdom. God will hear us as we cry out to Him asking for wisdom. I so appreciated uh, Pastor Jeremy's description of prayer. Prayer is not a changing of God's plan, but a fulfilling of God's plan. God is sovereign. We don't manipulate God by our prayers. That's what people try to do who worship false idols, false gods. They try to manipulate their God to do what they want. We don't do that with our great God who is sovereign King of all. No, we cry out to Him and we are the ones who get adjusted because He is sovereign. Um, prayer is not about getting things or getting m- even more of God, but aligning our will and He gets more of us. God gives comes to us and fills us completely and fully. But you know what? We often have rooms in our heart. We have reservations. We have things that we hold back. And God, we need to open up and give Him more of us, submitting to His will. I was also just uh, struck by the contrast of this request of the disciples. The contrast of this request for one to sit on his left and one to sit on his right to the prayer of Moses that we just covered in Exodus. Remember, in Exodus thirty-two, thirty-two, Moses cried out, "Forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book." Wow, what a what a prayer. Paul prayed a similar prayer in Romans 9.3. He says, Wish I were cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. Wow, what, what, what's going on here? What's the difference? What, is the, is the, what, what brings that kind of contrast? Surely it wasn't because that the disciples didn't believe it was that Jesus was Messiah. No, that even the nature of their request, one to sit on his left and one to sit on his right in glory, they were anticipating Jesus as being the Messiah. So they had faith. It wasn't a lack of faith. They believed in Christ. Even the origin of this request came from the rich young ruler just shortly before this. When Jesus said, and I took this from Matthew 19, 27-30, Peter then said in reply, See, because the rich man wouldn't give of his possessions, he rejected Christ and walked away when Christ said, Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor. That was too much for him. He loved his money more than he loved Christ. So Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So you see, Jesus had made this promise to them. of sitting with him in judgment. So why this request? Why why does this request just nag at us? Well, in this record of of Mark, we aren't um, told what some of the other Gospels tell us, but Jesus' mother and the mother of James and John We believed that they were sisters. And so James and John were coming to Christ, and they had been with Him at His transfiguration. So they had seen His glory manifested on the mount. But they were asking for a special position, weren't they? One on His left, one on His right. And I think it was a position where they could manipulate the Lord. It was a a position of influence that they were requesting. And that's why it kind of rubs us the wrong way and, and did the other disciples as well. We'll get to that in a minute. But I want you to see Jesus' gracious response. What a response He gave. Patient, wasn't He? Full of grace. He heard them. He answered them. He says, you don't know what you ask. You don't know what you ask. And then he gave why they didn't know what they asked. What a great God. He doesn't just say, absolutely not. Get out out of here, kid. (laughs) Oh, he explained the reason why. He explained that he was drinking a cup. A cup of suffering. A baptism of suffering. And really uniquely here in this Gospel of Mark, the wording here is in the present tense. The other Gospels in Matthew and Luke portray a different view. They put it in in their type of language that is being used. They put it in the future tense. That's very, very interesting. Because Mark, one of his objectives in his gospel was, first of all, to reach Gentiles like you and I. People who aren't Jewish, who aren't familiar with, totally with Jewish ways. And he was showing Christ as the servant. The one who served. Matthew wanted to portray Christ as king. Mark wanted to show Christ as servant. Very important and very key to helping us understand why he put it in the present tense. And if we think about it, it's it's not hard to consider the suffering that Christ, God Almighty, who had put on human flesh, suffered in His life. Think about it. We just went through Christmas time. Where was Jesus born? He was born with no room in the inn. He was placed in a manger, a feeding trough for animals. He was wrapped in swaddling cloths. The king of kings. And he came suffering. He was he was exiled to Egypt as all the babies two years old and under were slaughtered. In Bethlehem. He grew perfectly without sin, but with a sinful mother and father, with sinful brothers and sisters. How much did He suffer? We can just imagine. But He grew in grace, we're told in obedience, in every way He obeyed His Father. Christ not only died for us, He lived for us. That is the whole point of the Gospel. And we can't forget it. We need to understand this. He lived. He lived. Perfectly. Because if He had sinned, then His sacrifice wasn't enough. wasn't adequate for you and I. He suffered his whole life. He drank this cup of suffering. He was baptized in this suffering. So when you are suffering, when you face difficulties, you have a God who has identified with you He knows what you're going through, literally. He has tasted it. He has lived it perfectly. So when you cry out to Him, He knows you. He knows what you're going through. He has felt it. He has experienced it. He loves you. Jesus it's so amazing here when they when they ask to have this position of influence Jesus goes back to the message he's trying to convey to them doesn't he He has just told them I'm going to Jerusalem to be spit on to be flogged killed to be rejected to die and on the third day rise again and he goes back to that with their an answer to their question how amazing what an what wisdom of god we see here he returns to the subject of his suffering already being endured as God putting on flesh and his suffering to come. As he is rejected by men, there is a far greater dread in Jesus in that he is about to face And drink of the cup of the wrath of God for the sin of you and me. Not only that, He is about to face the separation for the first time ever of His Father and Himself. We're reminded of this a little later on in the garden when the soldiers come to arrest him and Peter takes out his sword and cuts off the guard's ear. And Jesus says, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Don't prevent me. Don't prevent me. I need to do this. And why did He need to do this? He needed to do this for you and for me. That steadfast, resolute love that we see. He also asked them a question. He says, are you able to drink this cup? He's answering their question of sitting on His left and His right he says i'm about to face to drink this cup i am drinking this cup i'm about to face this baptism of suffering i am facing this baptism of suffering are you able he said you don't know what you ask and james and john of course go we're able we're able And Jesus said, you will. You will drink of the cup. You will be baptized with the baptism. The suffering to be endured by them and even us as believers. We need to recognize this. As believers, we sign up for suffering. We don't sign up for a fairy tale life. You know why? Because that life is contrary to the life that God has given us. We are given new life. We who were once dead are given life. But the suffering to be endured by them, and it is a part of that suffering is the declaration of war. We sang that song this morning, O Church, Arise. It's a rally cry. A battle cry. We are called to war. And in war, there's suffering. That war is against our own flesh. Our own desires. It's against the devil who would seek to tempt us. It's against the world and its ways. Its godless ways. God calls us to war. Our suffering, the the suffering of James and John, would be nothing compared to what Jesus went through and was about to go through. So much so that He would request His Father to remove the cup in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember, He was praying. Father, remove this cup, but Your will be done. He submitted to His Father's will. But what they asked, James and John, what they asked to be seated on His right hand and His left, he says, was not for Him to give. Not for Him to give. It was his father's. He said it was for those to whom it was prepared. Here we see Jesus submitting to his father as we have seen him submit through his whole life. Perfectly. I want to share this little diagram with you. It doesn't originate with me. It's David Paulson. He wrote a little book called How Does Sanctification Work? And I just want to read his description of this as you look at it there. What is God doing in you? How is He working to conform you to His Son's image? To the image of Jesus? First and foundational to all, God Himself changes you. It is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Philippians 2.13 He intervenes in your life, turning you from a suicidal self-will to the kingdom of life. He raises you in Christ when you are dead in trespasses and sins. He restores hearing when you are deaf. You could not hear him otherwise. He gives sight when you are blind. You could not see him otherwise. He is immediately and personally present, a life-creating voice, a strong and strengthening hand. All good fruit in our lives comes by the Holy Spirit's working on a scene, unseen. Jesus said it was better if he went away because the Holy Spirit would come, John 16:7. The Holy Spirit continues to do the things that Jesus does, continually adding to the number of books that could be written. Second, the word of truth changes you. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple, Psalm 19.7. God communicates messages to us, many messages. Scripture speaks with a true voice into a world churning with false voices. Scripture reveals innumerable features of God's person, purposes, will, promises, and actions. Scripture clarifies every facet of human experience. I come to know myself truly as I live before the eyes of the one whose opinion matters. That's not your neighbor. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. It is no accident that Scripture appears in each of the stories in in everything. Of course, Scripture and God work in harmony. In fact, all five dimensions are complementary and all ultimately depend on the hand of God. One lovely expression of the interplay between the Word of God and the God of the Word occurs in Romans 15. Paul first points out how Scripture changes us. He says, Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Romans 15.3 A few sentences later, Paul asks God Himself to change us, to give us the very things that His Word calls for and calls forth. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Romans 15.13 Scripture. In Scripture, God comes in person. We participate by hearing and responding. Third, wise people change you. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, Proverbs 13.20. Godly growth is most frequently mediated through the gifts and graces of brothers and sisters in Christ. At the most basic corporate level, you can't call on God unless you believe in Him. You can't believe in Him unless you hear of Him. You can't hear of Him unless someone proclaims Him. Romans 10.4 Good worship, preaching, teaching, graciousness, humility, and clarity, good sense, and convictions of others have radiant, fruitful effects. James 3.17-18 Good role models make a huge difference. It is a great mercy to know people who deal gently with our ignorance and waywardness because they know their own weaknesses and sinfulness. And they know the mercies of Christ. Hebrews 5, 2-3 It makes a huge difference when other people are able to comfort you in your afflictions because God is bringing comfort into their afflictions. Fourth thing, and this may surprise you, I hope you're ready for this. Fourth, suffering, struggle, and troubles change you. Hebrews 5.8 says, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. God works on us in the midst of trouble because trouble catches our attention. Difficulties make us need him. Faith has to sink roots as profession deepens into reality. Martin Luther called it tentatio, affliction, trial, difficulty, struggle, the touchstone of Christian experience. He said that hardships were his greatest teacher because they made Scripture and prayer come alive. The difficulties that we experience necessitate grace by awakening a true sense of weakness and need. This is where the Spirit is working. People change because something is hard, not because everything goes well. Something, um, something, including myself, is off. Ministry traffics in trouble because Christ enters trouble, lives through trouble, is unafraid of trouble, speaks and acts into trouble, Struggles force us to need God, and we learn to love the way Christ loves only by experiencing the hard things that He experienced loving us. The darkness of the human condition is characterized by two immense wrongs that create turmoil throughout our lives. A complex mix of moral evil arise from inside us. A complex mix of situational evils beset us. The Bible uses the word evil to describe both sin and suffering just as we do in English. Something inside us is wrong. People believe, think, feel, want and do bad things. Of course, the obvious atrocities are moral evils, but the false falsity, self-deception, and godlessness of normal life and the misshapenness of normal desires, similarly count as moral evil in God's assessment. We are off in relation to both God and other people, and things outside us are wrong. Bad things happen to us. Other people betray us. We face losses, sicknesses, and death. We swim in the falsehoods of our sociocultural milieu. A liar and a murderer is out to deceive and kill us speaking of the devil. In some, we face troubles externally, we are troublesome interpersonally, and we are troubled psychologically, struggling both from with what we face and with who we are. Fifth, you change. You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, First Thessalonians 1.9. We turn from darkness to light from false gods to the only true God, from death to life, from unbelief to faith. You ask for help because you need help. You repent, you believe, trust, seek, take refuge. You are honest. You remember, listen, obey, fear, hope, love, give thanks, weep, confess, praise, delight, walk. Notice all these active verbs. They speak of a wholehearted, whole person action. These are the fruitful characteristics of a flourishing life. No one does any of this for you. You are not passive. You are not a puppet or a robot. You are 100% responsible, and yet you are 100% dependent on outside help. Any other way of putting it makes you either far too independent or far too passive. Notice, too, that none of these active verbs is a one and done. These are a way of life. Be encouraged, folks. God is working in you. And he's using all these things to conform you, to do the good that he promises in Romans eight twenty eight to those who love for those who love God. To be conformed to the image of his son. Well, We see, finally we come to this response of the other disciples and we see the trouble of this question to be seated on the left hand and the right hand of of the Savior. Selfish ambition is revealed. The indignation of the other disciples. Why were they indignant? Because they would have wanted to ask the same thing. Why are we indignant? Because we would have asked, we would have wanted to ask the same thing. <laughs> God is not to be manipulated. And yet, and he, God in his grace he reveals to them, he reveals to us when something irks us it should be an alert where we cry out to God and say, God, show me what's wrong. Show me why this is bothering me. Because something obviously is not right in my heart. Help me to see it. You see, the disciples, they thought they knew. They thought they anticipated correctly what was going to happen. The glorification of Christ and their glorification, their exaltation. They were turning a deaf ear to Christ, explaining to them what was about to happen in Jerusalem. They didn't want to hear that. They didn't see how it was necessary for them to be saved. And Jesus so graciously, so correctly, so wisely instructs them in leadership. Look what he says. He says, you as my followers are not to follow the pattern of the Gentiles in leadership who lord over others, who delight in squishing others and exalting themselves. To be great, you must be a servant. To be first, and this is amazing. He says you must be a slave to all. Wow. I don't think anyone likes being a slave. But that's what Jesus calls us to. An attitude of being a slave. To who? Of all. And then he gives his own example. For I have come. And he gives his whole purpose summed up in this verse. For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom as a ransom for many. This word ransom is amazing because, you know, if if you're in the financial world at all, which I'm not, but um, to get rid of debt, you have to need, you need someone. You have to pay it off, or you need someone to come buy purchase your debt. That's not what this verse is saying. Jesus came to ransom us. He bought us. And the word here is associated with the word atonement in that we are covered. Our sin is covered. We are purchased to be set free. Slaves to sin to be set free this was Jesus purpose and how did he do it by demanding that and and that he be treated as God as king of kings as lord of lords even though he was he did it through being a servant it's inconceivable isn't it Our call to worship this morning brings us out so clearly. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. This is key. This is the key. This is the key to all the struggles we face in this life. As Christians or non-Christians, this is the key. The problem? When we're living for ourselves. Why did Jesus die? So that we would no longer live for ourselves, but for Him. But for Him. We come to the second request. Mark 10, 46. And they came to Jericho, and as He was leaving Jericho with His disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus. I think that's so funny. Bartimaeus, because bar means son of Timaeus. But remember, Mark is writing this for us Gentiles who don't know Jewish ways and Jewish names, so he explains it, he spells it out for us. Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that, It was Jesus of Nazareth. He began to cry out and say, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling them to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? The same words he said to James and John. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said, Rabbi or Rabboni, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well or literally saved you. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Bartimaeus. A blind beggar. What is really unique about this r- record is that most, all other miracles that Jesus did were not told their names. Here we're given his name, Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. He was a blind beggar, but he had this persistent believing cry. He too believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And he cried this cry persistently, believingly Son of David! That was a declaration of his belief that Jesus was the Messiah. Son of David, have mercy on me. This wasn't a cry or a request for a position of authority or manipulation or influence. Was it just the opposite? It was a cry of need. Though the disciples could see, they were blind. Though Bartimaeus was blind, he could see. He saw his need. He needed the Savior. He needed Jesus. And how magnificent Jesus called him. The crowd first had tried to squelch him, and he cried all the more. He cried louder, Son of David, have mercy on me. But now, Jesus' leadership in calling this blind beggar changes the crowd. We have an awesome responsibility, don't we? Because how we treat needy folks, how we treat the unsaved, is going to affect those around us how they treat the needy. Jesus' response was one to listen, to call. So the crowd encourages him now. They like, get up, he's calling for you, he heard you. And they help him. But what a dramatic faith we see. Here he is, sitting on the side of the road. He's wearing the beggar attire. And so dramatically, his faith is so strong, he throws off his cloak. That, that identity of a being a beggar, he knows life is going to be different from now on. He throws off that identity, that cloak. He bears Himself of that identity. And He cries out. He says, Rabboni, in answer to Jesus' question, what can I do for you? He says, let me recover my sight." Jesus saved him and healed him. What was his response? It's key. Because not only did Bartimaeus know he needed to see physically, he knew he needed to see spiritually. He knew he was dead in his trespasses and sin. He saw his need. He knew his need. And he knew what Jesus could do. Jesus could give him life. And so upon receiving his sight, Jesus told him to go. Go his way. He said, my way is your way. I'm following you. And he followed Jesus. Where was Jesus going, remember? Where was he going? To Jerusalem. To be spit on. To be flogged. Be mocked, to be rejected, to be killed. Will you follow Jesus in that way to that place? Will you follow Jesus in suffering? Will you allow Him to work His will in you to change you to be like Jesus? Our response this morning oh, there's so much. Isn't it It's so glorious? This past, a passage exalts the glory of God through Jesus. We want to focus. We need to focus. We need to work. We need to war in our minds, in our hearts, that the most important thing to us is the glory of God. We need to remember God hears us when we cry out. He hears us and He has the power to do something. When suffering comes your way, don't pull away from the Word of God. Don't stop praying. Don't settle in your misery. But go to the One who can help. Go to the One who can heal. Run to Him that little picture of that house and all those things that God is doing and working through Himself, His Word, others and suffering and you. Remember, part of that work, it's a war. It's a work of war because we are being shown. He's faithful to show us where and when we fall short. When we sin, what is the sin? So often we're blind to our own sin. We like to think pretty well of ourselves. When God says, no, you need to see your need like Bartimaeus. And I will be faithful in showing you your need. So you will come to me. So you will run to me. And cry for mercy. We are saved to live for Christ. Not ourselves. And then for the Son of Man. Came to seek and to save the lost. We see Jesus. Here he was. Leading the crowd. To his suffering. And on the way. He is meeting His disciples, blind beggar Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, to Himself. He came to seek them, to save them. Do we have that passion? As we walk through life, as we struggle through suffering, so often we be so internal focused, don't we? I want to say this with great compassion because I understand a little and I know our Lord Jesus understands completely because He has identified with us. But we dare not forget or lose this passion when we're struggling, when we're suffering. Keep this priority that Jesus had for those who need him. Be ready with an answer. Be ready to point others to your Savior, to the one who can make a difference, to the one who can do something about suffering. We have a great God, a glorious God, Glory to His name. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we come to You and we want to acknowledge Your glory. Your glory found in our creation, in Your Word, and in the person of Lord the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, You have taught us so many things in this passage. We pray that we would be faithful in hearing them in allowing you to work in and through us. That you would be the one that we seek to live for. That you would be the one that we open our eyes and see our great need and cry to you for. That we would be faithful in pointing others who are in great need. For you are the only one who can meet that need. We thank you and praise you that you are able, that you are willing, that you came to seek and save the lost. We praise your name. Ask that you would go with us um, and, and teach us, even as we anticipate this new year, living for you in your precious name.